This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Our co-hosts, Roberta and Lucia, are taking a summer break. So today, you'll hear a popular and previous McKinsey podcast episode. It's about how to determine the health of your organization and features McKinsey partners Rajesh Krishnan and Brooke Weddle. The conversation is led by former host Simon Lendon. So Brooke and Rajesh, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Simon. Likewise, Simon. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to do this. So Brooke, when I hear the words organizational health, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like Zumba classes and fitness trackers. But that's not what we're going to be talking about, right? No, it's not. But I, I think the metaphor in some ways help. Organizational health is about the way in which you run your organization to effectively de- deliver against your performance goals. Much as you would with physical health, want to have exercise regime that allowed you to achieve a level of mental health, physical health, to be able to deliver against your own ambition levels as a, as an individual, organizations need to do the same thing. Now there's a technical definition associated with this as well, and we like to say that organizational health is comprised of three things. One is how well the organization aligns around a common strategy and then translates that down into the work environment, how well the organization executes against its its, its strategy and its ambition, and then how well it renews itself over time. And that basically means two things. One, looking outside, staying in tune with the customer or, or its clients. And then two, having an internal innovation engine so that you can allow those insights to be brought into the organization and turned into something useful in, in terms of driving innovation and new capabilities. That all sounds very reasonable, but how did we decide that these are the things, um, alignment, execution, and renewal, that define a healthy organization? The research dates back over 15 years, Simon, and initially we were trying to understand what set organizations apart that performed for long periods of time. Many of us have seen the data from the S&P 500 where the, the tenure of the average company is, is, is decreasing. And the idea is that the organizations that lasted focused on organizational health, what we later called organizational health, as much as they did performance. And when you break it down, you see that there are nine outcomes and 37 management practices. And those are the things that organizations do to drive the outcome. I'm feeling a little bit slow today, Brooke. So so just make sure I understand this distinction between outcomes and practices. Let's take motivation. What do you do to motivate your employees? You pay them, you give them career opportunities, you reward and you recognize them using non-financial tools and levers. You want to help them find meaning in their work. We've all seen that research. And you need to lead them by being inspirational. Those are exactly the practices that sit behind the motivation outcome. So when we look at those two levels of data, we can help an organization understand what are the levers that they're using to drive motivation, what is working well, what is not working well from an impact standpoint on that outcome. And just to clarify, the the data about practices that companies are using and whether people are indeed motivated, aligned, and so on. How do we get it? 
Well, it's, it's actually quite simple. We ask employees. Um, so all of our organizational health data comes from the tool, the Organizational Health Index, and it's a, it's a survey. It's, um, it's a survey that we generally deploy to the entire organization, and we ask for their views and perspectives on the nine outcomes that we talked about and the 37 management practices. We have over 6 million respondents in the database. We have, I think we're up to 2,000 companies that have deployed the OHI, 25% of the Fortune 500. We like to say that when you add it all up, we have a billion data points on organizational health. And the interesting thing about doing it in this way is that, of course, you hear directly from employees, and that's important. But the other thing that you see through the data is differences, right? And and one that frequently comes up is that leaders in the company have a very biased view of their organization's health. They actually, they have an overly positive view of it. And so I, we've been in many eye-opening conversations with leadership teams where we show them the difference in perception between frontline and the leadership team. And it's a real moment of clarity around, you know, look at how people are seeing the, the way in which the, the place is run compared to the way you see it and, and, and the blind spots that that uh, suggests. And then, of course, you can link the health scores, I guess, back to performance metrics, which is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, that's right. So we have research that looks at outcome measures that are related to total returns to shareholders, to productivity measures in a call center, even to uh, patient error rates in a hospital. We're able to look at a diverse set of performance outcomes and link that back to organizational health in terms of positive correlations. So Rajesh, let me bring you in here. I know a lot of your work is with organizations going through, uh, you know, performance transformations. So just to play devil's advocate, why are you interested in all this soft stuff about management practices and behaviors? It is definitely the behaviors, but I wouldn't characterize it as a soft stuff. When we talk about transformations, we're talking about dramatic change, dramatic change in the performance of that organization, which means that they're underperforming right now. Something needs to materially change so that they can do better, uh, better margins, better revenues, whatever the metric be. They're unlikely to do that unless they fundamentally look at what's not working today and changing the way that's done. Ripping costs out, for example, is not a transformation. If you go in somewhere, you can always find things you can stop buying, but you haven't fundamentally changed whatever was the issue that got that company to underperform in the first place. So looking at the company holistically, running the OHI, which is our instrument to measure health, understanding what are the behaviors that are getting people in that organization stuck in the first place, and then figuring out why that's happening and fixing them, we think is a commitment you have to make if you want to transform. So when you run the OHI, you might find out, for example, that there's really poor consequence management, that people often sign up for goals and targets, but they miss them, and when they miss them, they're not held accountable. Well, if that sort of behavior persists, even if you choose to set a transformation and you have a big aspiration, chances are people will continue to fail uh, and as a result, you will never really get out of uh, the hole you're in. So we think being holistic, looking at performance and looking at health. In performance, where do we think there are opportunities, whether it's from a sales or an operations uh, or from a function standpoint, and then from a health side, which is what are the behaviors we need to emphasize and reinforce. We think these two together give you an answer that will allow you to get to the end state that you want um, as a company or as an institution. 
even so, this, this sounds mighty complicated. I think Brooke mentioned earlier that there are, what, 37 different management practices uh, underpinning the organizational health index. I mean, surely in any context, that's too many for a manager to hold in, uh, hold in their head. We don't recommend people to focus on 37. In fact, we know that if you try focusing on all 37, you will fail. What is important to understand is when you look at your team or when you look at your unit as a manager, you want to get a sense of what's not working well or as well as you would like it to and what is important for your success. And then we would recommend that you prioritize a manageable set of behaviors that will really help you go after the performance improvement that you want to unlock. For a number of transformation contexts that I serve, that number is typically around like 8 to 12 things because these are companies or organizations that are looking to drive a material performance gain. And in order for them to do that, there are a number of things they need to change about the way they run their place. On the other hand, there are some organizations that are quite well run, and maybe it's just a handful, three to five things that they really want to focus on and double down. Every time you go to the doctor, you come back, there's a couple of things that look out of whack, and you want to focus on those and make sure like those are under control. So this is a true diagnostic. It helps identify where there are areas of opportunity. And then you should prioritize within that what's the right thing for you to focus on. To build on what Rajesh is saying, we use a concept called the recipes to help organizations prioritize the management practices that they're going to focus on, knowing that they shouldn't focus on all 37. The way that we developed the, the recipes was we said it's not good enough, right, to have the perspective that all 37 management practices are are created equal. We actually should look at the data and see what the top-performing companies in our database from a health perspective are doing when it comes to prioritizing these, these different practices. And when we did this cluster analysis, there were four recipes that have emerged. And we've actually done this twice now, and the recipes have remained the same in terms of the general clustering. And those four recipes are leadership factory, market shaper, execution edge, and uh, talent knowledge core. And just to clarify, each of these recipes describes a kind of management philosophy or an an archetype, right? A, A bundle of different practices. Yeah, that's right. Leadership Factory would be about deriving a competitive advantage from building a strong leadership bench. So when you look at iconic companies that are doing this, um, you see them over-investing in leadership development, in talent programs that uh, puts leaders in stretch opportunities, stretch roles to try to enable that, that development to happen more quickly and really deriving a competitive advantage around it. For market focus, you see companies that have an outsized emphasis on shaping the market, shaping customer preferences, and, and building goods and services to, to meet those needs and, and even to create goods and services not only to meet a need, but to actually create something that customers didn't even know they needed in the first place. Third, the execution edge. This is a, a group of companies that are deriving their competitive advantage from getting better every day. So this is where you would see some of the classic lean uh, principles playing out. It, the, the, the Really, the heart of the execution edge recipe are management practices that focus on innovation, of course, bottom-up innovation, top-down innovation, but really leveraging the full power of the workforce. So you see employee involvement, you see performance transparency, holding people accountable um, in visible ways. And then finally, you have talent knowledge core. That's the 
That's the only recipe that really emerges more as an industry-specific type. And here you would find companies that are involved in professional services, R&D. In, in some cases, you see, uh, you know, some of the, the, the sciences show up here, innovation. The, the companies here are, are focused on getting the best talent and expertise and cultivating that in ways that allow them to stay ahead of the competition. So giving those people great career opportunities, of course, paying them very well in some cases, rewarding and recognizing them and ensuring that their recruiting engine is always um, best in class. So Rajesh, just to bring us home, maybe give us a concrete example. Um, What are the kind of management practices that underpin one of these recipes? You know, pick anyone you like. Okay, so let's say you're a manufacturing organization or a Uh, and you have picked the execution edge or the continuous improvement engine recipe. The practice that is probably the most important to that recipe is performance transparency, right? Which is very simply put, how do you, do you make results of an individual, of a unit easily accessible and widely available for people to look at? With the belief that if that information is made available, good things happen. Let's say you are a manufacturing plant and your yields are pretty low, you're not like producing as many units as you would like. Providing performance transparency in that instance, taking the time to say, let's have a dashboard that shows for every single line that we have in this plant, how many units we are producing, how many units have quality defects, like whatever the metric is, and let's just make that available across all the different teams that we have. What tends to happen in those situations instantly is everyone always anchors on who's at the top, And why is it not possible for them to get from where they are to get to where they can be? Because you made these results accessible. If that line can operate at 96% utilization, why are you operating at 72% utilization? And people try and understand, they're A, motivated to to do better, but they also understand perhaps what is allowing that line to operate at its best, and they make changes to their maintenance schedule, they bring in more knowledgeable people to fix things, and it gets better. Similarly, Let's say you're a sales manager who has to sell the products um, of this plant and you have a number of salespeople and your margins have been declining uh, even though your sales have remained flat. Providing transparency, not just on revenues, but on margins generated by salespeople often helps because salespeople tend to be a competitive bunch. So the performance transparency you're providing here is not a culture exercise that's happening on the side. It is a management behavior that allows for us to be able to get better uh, by learning what the other person is doing and just knowing where to aspire to. So that's why we don't think um, these things are separate or that health often is at the detriment of near-term performance. If anything, it is actually used to accelerate uh, and provide performance gains uh, when used in the right way. Presumably, you know, when you open this conversation with clients, most management teams have got a fairly clear idea of the you know, the recipe or the management philosophy that they're pursuing and therefore, you know, the management practices that they should be prioritizing. A lot of the companies that Rishesh and I work with actually don't have at least a common understanding of the recipe or management philosophy that they are pursuing, which causes a lot of cognitive dissonance in the organization about how to how to run the place, right? So where should I be spending my time? If I had in, an incremental hour, should I be on the front line 
trying to get an hour's worth of improvement out of the, the, the frontline crew there? Or should I spend an hour of my time really investing and in trying to understand the next generation of insights from a customer focus group? So it, it really has pretty significant implications for the, the alignment of a, around a, a common way to run the place when you think about this recipe. But most companies wouldn't be able to clearly articulate what that is. And the, and the organizational health discussion allows them to have a clearer conversation about that using a common language. You want to re- constantly, not every year, but every two, three, five years, reevaluate where you are and what recipe you've selected and what really is going to likely lead you to success. We think the recipes are useful to get a sense of what sets of behaviors work. But the recipe to me as a manager is not that helpful. What I want to know is what are the things that my teams think we're not doing as well as others are, that there is room for improvement. So if, for example, you say there's not enough career opportunities, there are not enough rewards and recognition, I'm not being a supportive leader. That's helpful for me because I know what behaviors can help overcome that. To be a supportive leader, if I'm over-anchoring on challenging or authoritative leadership, what are the behavior changes that I need to bring in so that I'm seen as a balanced leader who's able to get the most out of my team? Uh, If there is a lack of role clarity, it's very clear that I probably need to have discussions with all my team members and make it very clear who's responsible for what and who do they need to go to for help. So once you move the expectations from let's follow a recipe for success to the behavior being the unit at which change occurs, it just makes it really tangible. I can get specific actions that if I take will improve the health of my team and as the statistics say, when that happens, the performance improves as well. So let's let's just talk a little bit more about companies going through, you know, real performance transformations, uh, which was the topic for the article, the yin and yang of, of organizational health. Um, what are some of the considerations in a transformation context in particular? And what does the data tell us about what works? When we looked at a set of transformations that we've worked on over the past few years, there are four themes that emerged and eight practices in particular that led to material improvements in health and in performance. And the four themes were making sure there's a clear direction for the transformation. What are we trying to achieve? Is there a vision that allows all of us to rally around? And is there strategic clarity in terms of all the business units, the teams, and everyone knowing what are the goals we're going for? What are the milestones and when when do we need to accomplish them? Then that cascades down to providing clarity and meaning for employees. Does every individual employee know their role in delivering this vision that the company has? Do people feel engaged? Are employees involved in being able to set the direction for themselves? And in doing so, do they look for ideas and do they look for innovation? So both capturing external ideas, so looking outside from your suppliers, from your customers, from other parties that you engage with, and can you bring innovations in that you can try? Uh, And also encouraging bottom-up innovation, which is asking your front line to think about how they can provide inputs that change the way in which work gets done. Uh, And then finally, making sure there's a really strong performance cadence. The transformations that we undertake have a strong infrastructure that make sure that you are operationally disciplined and you live up to the commitments that you have made and that you deliver on time uh, and in value, but also making sure that that's supplemented by supportive leadership so that if there are genuine reasons why we couldn't perform at the level we wanted to, uh, that there is an environment that 
allows for us to care about the employees' welfare and gives them a chance to be able to come back uh, and do better at this. So these are the four things that we think when they come together are really powerful in having a direction, making sure that there is clarity for the individual, making sure that we have ideas that we bring in to spark the transformation, and that we have an infrastructure that allows for us to be disciplined, but at the same time, allowing for support and welfare uh, to be priorities that the leadership focuses on. The research was really interesting because it was interesting to see operationally disciplined side-by-side with supportive leadership, right? Those seem to be, in some ways, not opposite, but working against each other. How can you be a supportive leadership but also have an extre- you know, a, a, a fair amount of discipline? But then when we looked at the other practices as well, we again saw this theme of of almost balance across the two elements. So yes, strategic clarity, but that's not enough. You also needed to create this more kind of qualitative shared vision. And then in the case of sparking ideas and innovation, it was about, yes, the bottom-up innovation inside the organization, but the only way to do that well is to look outside, right, and, and capture those external ideas. So, I, And that's why we ended up calling the article Yin and Yang, because there really was a sense of balance between the two elements. And I think that resonated with us in terms of our own personal experience, because I think even if you go back to the, the physical health analogy, you can see that, you know, just doing the, the hard lifting every day would probably not enable you to achieve your health goals. You also have to balance that with stretching, with doing some yoga, right, with some of the softer elements of exercise as well. So it, it just was interesting the way that that research played out. One of the clients that I served really made a strong point to emphasize innovating from within. So when they had to design new safety equipment, they went to their front line and said, well, what do you need? Uh, and can we get your inputs in making sure that we design the best possible visor for you? Uh, in terms of capturing external ideas, they were a very siloed organization. They were very insular. There was a not invented here syndrome because at some point in time, they had been the best at what they were doing. Uh, but then they completely turned it around. And any new hire who joined the organization they spent a few days to a week really trying to understand how did stuff happen in their old job, or even if the industry was different, and could those ideas have relevance for how this organization worked? And in uh, one of their Asian markets, they found out that there were ways to manage trade uh, and how they access different markets and how they manage the regulatory system that were immensely helpful for unlocking like new ways of doing things. So each of these things, you know, combined can actually become pretty powerful. So what I love about that example is that it's like intensely practical. You know, it really answers the question, what should we be doing differently as a management team, you know, today? Yeah, and I think the point, linking it back to the behaviors, is that the recipes can help you alongside the transformation practices in focusing on a short set of management of management practices to focus on. But from there, it is about basically running workouts. <laughs> you need to, to build some new muscles. And that's when behaviors and, frankly, the mindsets that underlie them come into play. This is not about just kind of talking at the level of we need better role clarity. It's about understanding, well, what's the mindset holding us back from not having straightforward conversations about my role versus yours? Well, maybe that feels uncomfortable. Maybe there's an issue around power and me wanting to, you know, keep doing this part of the job because I get a lot of recognition for it. Without going and doing that deeper work, you won't be able to make those behavioral shifts that we know are critical to actually driving improvements in health. 
What are some of the do's and don'ts for, you know, really getting substantive, sustainable improvements in, in organizational health? You know, what, and what are some of the failure modes? What are some of the things not to do? Probably the most important thing that we have found is that you shouldn't do this on the side, right? This is not a culture program for culture's sake. This is not about trust falls uh, and doing cartwheels um, and like singing Kumbaya. This is really about if we look at how we get work done, what do we need to do better? You actually need a top team that is committed to making the change happen because as with everything, role modeling is the single most important thing to do. In general, there are people who don't know what is being asked of them or there are multiple being people doing the same thing. Uh, it often tends to be because the top team has overlapping responsibilities or they have a misunderstanding of who's actually responsible for what outcome. So fixing those issues there, getting those people to be very clear in terms of who's responsible for what, who do they need to go to for authority, by when do they need to get things done, who else do they need to get inputs from. If that role modeling is done by the top, we find that that flows down across all the ranks of the organization. So having the, the CEO, the top team bought into the types of change that you're bringing about is important. I think the the common trap here is that when working on organizational health, because it is perceived to be, and, and in, in some sense rightly so, a way to change the culture of the organization, it is seen to be as an HR topic only. And I think Rajesh and I would both say that based on our experiences, that keeping it only in the realm of HR significantly limits the potential of the organization to to drive health. So um, Rajesh mentioned the need to have the top team fully bought in and role modeling the organizational health behaviors. Well, when it's seen as something on the side, something driven only by HR, the impact on role modeling is that it doesn't happen or is it doesn't happen as well. And on that note, I'm sorry to say we are out of time for today. Uh, but Brooke and Rajesh, thanks for your patience, putting up with a, a lot of very basic questions. But it was enlightening and uh, great fun talking to you. Thanks, Simon. It was a lot of fun to be here. Thanks, Simon. Really appreciate your questions. And hopefully we can do this again at some point. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. We'll see you in two weeks.